This is a podcast asking the very best in the world how to stay resilient. I'm Michael Bungay-Stanier, and we will get through this. So last year, I had the delight and honor to be named on the shortlist for the Thinkers 50 Award for their coaching award, first coaching award being being awarded. And I looked around the shortlist and I went, well, I'm in trouble here. <laughs> I mean, I was lucky to get on the shortlist. There's no way I'm going to win a prize because the caliber of other people who were on that shortlist was was really noticeable. I mean, it was a really high quality group of people. One of those people was Tom Colditz. And when I introduce him to you, you'll understand exactly why you're thinking to yourself, yeah, Michael, I don't know why you made that shortlist. So Tom Colditz is the founding director of the Door Institute for New Leaders at Rice University, which has been named top university program by the Association of Leadership Educators. In 2017, he received the Warren Bennis Award for Excellence in Leadership and has ranked among the top 25 global coaches for the last three years. The Door Institute is his fifth successful leader development startup, and his book, In Extremist Leadership, Leading as if Your Life Depended Upon It, has become, predictably enough perhaps, the go-to text in leading in the COVID-19 crisis. And before all of this, Tom was a brigadier general in the US military. So Tom, it's really nice to talk to you again. Michael, always a pleasure to be with you. When you look at the, the book, In Extremist Leadership, Part of what's at the heart of it is understanding risk and managing risk. And I'm curious, you know, when you think of your both your military leadership and training and your business leadership and training, how do you go about evaluating risk? Yeah, so it's really pretty straightforward. Um, and there are two, two aspects of risk or two probabilities you have to look at. One is the most likely outcome, what's most likely to happen. And then second, what's the most dangerous outcome? Right. So there could be a whole array of possibilities, but if you can focus on the most likely outcome and take care of that, and then account for the most dangerous outcome and and do a pretty good job of controlling that, well, then you're then you're right where you need to be because you'll never be able to predict all of the possible outcomes. Those are the two that you have to start with. That's really interesting. Now, I know that when I'm in in tough situations, my ability to actually judge <laughs> outcomes, what the most likely is, what the most dangerous is, it actually isn't that great because whatever biases I have kind of come to the fore, I'm often – uh, you know, I think there's a Bob Dylan song called Blood in My Eyes. And I'm like, I've got, I've got the kind of fear and anger and sadness. I've got these emotions coursing through me. And I'm actually not making great decisions around how to read a situation. Is there, are there ways you would direct us around how do we get beyond our, our physical failings that stop us being as smart as we think we are? Well, sure. I mean, the first and, and most obvious way is to get other people involved. And there is a terrific uh, little process called a pre-mortem mm. where you bring people together anywhere from six to 50 people. If you want, you give them a blank sheet of paper and you tell them, give me the most dangerous outcome. Tell me what is 
the most dangerous uh, probability occurrence for us in our current circumstance and have them have them give that to you anonymously gather it all up and then read them and right. you'll find there's probably some consensus around that the other thing that's really good about these the pre-mortems um is they're very good if there is an off chance oddball occurrence that you know a few people see coming but uh, you don't as the leader because it's so odd or so off off uh, track right. or what you're, you're usually looking at. And there are other good processes for logically deriving what the problems in an organization might be. But sometimes the worst problems are pretty irrational. And that's where this premortem comes in and does such a great job. It eliminates the possibility of after the crisis, somebody standing off to the side going, well, hell, I knew that was going to happen. Right. I saw that uh, coming a mile away. You have to yeah. find that person ahead of I time. I love that. Yeah. I mean, in some ways, you're you're tapping into a couple of things. You're, there's the wisdom of crowds, and you're going, what's, what's the consensus amongst the, an interesting select curated crowd? And that tells you something. And then the the oddball events, they're not exactly black swan events because black swan events are really unimaginable, but they're kind of like rare white swans. <laughs> if that's not a confusion, maybe it's a duck. Anyway, it's, a, it's, it's not the obvious, but it's like out there on the outlier. But if more than one person's seeing it, maybe there's something about that. Yeah. I mean, I've done this process with groups and I've found people who have committed crimes I found people who, uh, unbeknownst to me, had addictions that were getting in the way of their work. Right. Uh, you know, a lot of these things, once you see them, they make a lot of sense to you. But unless unless someone else can point them out, you'll never you'll never uh, find them yourself. Tom, I'm curious. I know one of the the suggestions around the pre mortem was to have people um, put forward their their input anonymously. One of the challenges that you've got, you know, as you rose through the ranks to become a brigadier general is you have the, the, the influence of leadership and the gravitas of leadership and how easy it is if you're the leader to kind of suck the oxygen out of the room, suck the opinions out of the room because it's like, you know, the, the hippo effect, the highest, one of the most important person's opinion thing. Um, how, do you, how do you invite participation? How do you invite shared responsibility when you're a leader and you and just positionally there's something that discourages that? Yeah, so I always try to, to uh, start with the most junior, most vulnerable person in the room. And I'll reach out to them and I'll just cold call them. What do you think? And right. usually they're so, you know, they're so far <laughs> from the top that they have this uh, honest, this honesty about them. Uh, they're they're not high enough to be political yet. Uh, <laughs> I love that. That's kind of that naivety that gives them a, an honesty to them. Yeah, yeah, and they'll tell you the truth, and then others will follow suit. But if you start with like your deputy or you know some other person of stature, uh, you don't get it. When I was in the military, I used to ask my driver all the time. You know, he was like a 19-year-old Hispanic kid from from uh, Odessa, Texas. And, you know, we'd be in a meeting and I just turned to him 
and I'd say, you know, Corporal Fritz, what do you think? Right. And he would tell me, and he was not uh, stupid. I mean, he would, he would generally have things uh, pretty well dialed in. So I start with the youngest person, the least experienced person in the room and build on that. Now, for people who haven't met you, then people may have a kind of uh, a reaction to go, look, how does somebody who is a brigadier general suddenly become a champion for coaching? <laughs> Isn't there an inherent contradiction between a, a military hierarchy and a military way of working and this idea of what coaching brings, which feels like the opposite of a, of a direct command? How do you square that particular circle, Tom? Yeah. So, you know, there are a lot of misconceptions about the military and Mm -hmm. that's particularly true in a global context because, you know, one army can be vastly different from another army. Uh, In in the U.S. Army, there are two things that that dominate uh, the way that we interact with people. And the first is that there is nothing held in higher regard than leadership. Uh, You know, it's considered to be a uh, you know, the, the holy grail of, of military interaction. But the other thing that's, that's key about the U.S. military is very egalitarian, very much in a meritocracy. Right. And so people are expected to never lean on their rank. The rank gives them a certain set of responsibilities, but it doesn't give them any advantage in the, in the framework that we operate in our military. So a general is supposed to take the same physical fitness test as a private. Um, And one of the things about being in combat and, you know, our military has unfortunately been in combat for 15 years. Um, Yes. The, the value of rank in combat in situations where people are really afraid goes down dramatically. People really don't care what your rank is. Uh, <laughs> right. you know, if you're giving them bad advice, they're going to walk away from you. And, uh, and likewise, someone who they do trust, regardless of rank, is who they're going to follow. Uh-huh. So, so perhaps on a parade field, leaders can be dictators and martinets and order people around. But in dangerous places, it just doesn't work that way. Because the threat is much higher than any sort of, you know, rank imbued authority. Um, and so you really have to earn it in those situations. And in fact, one of the things that you talk about in the book is that one of the ways to, to lead is to create a sense of shared risk. Um, and that, I thought that was very interesting because so often if you're a leader and this is not in the military, this is just throughout organizational life. Quite often I see people when they, particularly newer leaders, they're like, I need to be responsible for everybody and everything. (laughs) And it's all on my shoulders. That's what the job means. But you're actually encouraging something different. And I'm curious to know how you cultivate the responsibility and accountability that leads to a sense of shared risk. Sure. Well, you know, we found that concept to be uh, predominant in in Iraq. And really what we mean by that is this. Usually the lower level people in the organization are going to have inherently more risk. Right. And consequently, when a leader 
can reach down and demonstrate that they are sharing that risk, that that leader has their own skin in the game, that they're not using their position uh, to protect themselves when they're not doing that for the people who work with them. That's shared risk. Mm-hmm. And so if, you know, we see this in corporate um, circumstances sometimes when leaders take a lot of their pay, a lot of their remuneration in company stock. Right. Because that means that, you know, if the company goes down, it's not just the lower level employees who are going to be furloughed or fired. And that's the end of it. The leader has a lot to lose. And that's a great, that's a great position from which to develop trust because uh, people understand you're in it with them and they respect that and admire that. Tom, the other thing that I've found impressive about you is the transition from being a senior leader in the military to being a successful and senior leader across different institutions in outside the military life. And here's my hypothesis, that you must be good at unlearning. I mean, not just learning, the importance of learning is, is there, but there's something about the power of unlearning as well. And I'm wondering, um, you know, and I don't know this to be, I might be just making this up, but I'm curious to know how you, how you hold learning about what you, what you take on and also what you put away. You know, I try to make sure that my focus is not on, you know, my own style or my own preferences in how I lead and manage people. Uh, I focus almost entirely on what do the people around me need? Mm. And, and if you do that, if you focus on the people that you're leading and you don't focus on yourself, then your style or your, or your way of engaging them will, will change just chameleon-like. Right. And, you know, I was at West Point for 12 years uh, commanding an academic department that had 57 professors, and some of them were military and some of them were c- civilian professional academics. and. Right. And some of our military were young people who were fresh from combat and others were, you know, permanent military professors. And I had to engage with all of those constituencies in different ways. They all pretty much had different expectations. Right. And so I, I really think our best leaders are, are actually very good at, at adapting to these differing kinds of circumstances because it's not a personal consistency or style that moves us. It's what do these people in front of me need right now? Right. You know, are they fourth graders who want me to teach them about how a parachute works? Or are they senators who are visiting our department? Or something in between? And, uh, and so if you make it about the people and not about yourself, it's really easy to adapt across all these kinds of circumstances. I love that. And, you know, it reminds me of the Daniel Goleman article back in, I think, 2000 in the HBR called Leadership That Gets Results. And he actually says, look, there are six different leadership styles and um, great leaders know how to use the right one at the right time. And typical leaders use maybe two, maybe three of those different leadership styles. But part of what you're saying, Tom, is that you know, you read your audience, you read the context of that audience, you then get clear on the leadership style that you bring to that, that interaction. 
Yes, exactly. You know, when we did the research for uh, the book you described, In Extremist Leadership, we did 175 interviews in Iraq, mm. and we did not talk to a single leader. We were talking to soldiers who were being led by other people. And so we were essentially asking them, you know, how did your leader behave that allowed you to follow them? And, you know, how did your leader behave in ways that caused you to trust them? And and questions like that. But it was all about the followers. We we weren't interested in what the leaders thought. One of the things that you talk about in that same book is um, managing emotion. And, you know, it's interesting just reflecting back on your previous comment around the ability to go, you know, is this a group of fourth graders, a group of senators, is it a young academic, is it an old academic? Um and part of the ability to be there and understand that need is an ability to get out of your own way. And one of the things that, for me anyway, and I think for others as well, that, that stops you getting out of your own way is, you know, being, being knocked off balance by however it is that you're feeling. And I'm curious to know your perspective on how you manage and handle emotions because of course the military cliche is suppress them at all costs <laughs> like we don't want emotions here we want hardcore rational just go for it don't don't let the feelings get in the way but i suspect you got a different perspective on it well i think that that i would i would say i manage my emotions very differently in a routine situation versus an intense situation like a crisis. Right. So in routine circumstances, it's kind of important that people see that you have um, honest and translatable emotions that you can show sadness and you can show a little bit of concern and you can demonstrate empathy through the expression of your emotions. Right. When all of a sudden you're in a crisis and emotions can be contagious, uh -huh. my own emotions get a lot more flat. Right. And it's a lot harder to, to see what I'm experiencing. And, you know, I can get away with that because very seldom am I in a crisis with people who don't know me and haven't worked with me in the past. And so I've already put money in the bank in terms of empathy and trust and so forth. Huh. And then what they want from me is just some really good, rational decision-making, and they want some direction, and they want to see confidence in my eyes. Um, you know, I do not believe in total transparency uh, during a crisis because there are times when the leader really has no answers, and it doesn't do anyone any good for that leader to inject more uncertainty right. or, or less confidence into the situation. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, I've always tried to be a calming influence. Even when I inside, I was full of butterflies. <laughs> um, you know, I, I, my job is to make people more effective in a crisis. Right. And, and you don't, you don't get that by spinning them up or by sharing your own, fears and anxieties that's that's almost selfish of a leader in a crisis you know i have i have a friend of mine who talks about 
effectively a similar thing, which is why being authentic is overrated. It's like, let me show you what authentic looks like. <laughs> and it's this. And you don't want this as a presenter or a speaker or a teacher or a leader. You want somebody who's going, I know the role that's useful for me to play. How do I inhabit it in a way that is um, true to who I am, but is also appropriate to the moment? Exactly. You know, I, I mean, and especially when emotions are really high, when I've been around panicked people, the kind of leadership they wanted from me was 100% authoritative and directive. They wanted me to tell them what to do. And, right. you know, if you've, I hope you haven't, but if you've, you've ever had to talk to a physician about a devastating medical diagnosis, mm -hmm. that is not a negotiation. You're looking that expert in the eye and you want them to tell you exactly what the, what the proper course of action is. Right. And, that's how people get when they're really afraid. They, they really do want direction. They're already motivated. They don't need the motivating aspects of a leader. They need the directive aspects of a leader. That's very interesting, Tom. How in those moments do you process or manage your own butterflies, as you said? You know, you're like, you can, you're like I know what people need from me is direction. I know they need reassurance that I'm feeling competent and confident and I've got that light of certainty in my eye. But as you say, there's a, there's how you, what you're portraying, but inside you might be going, Oh no, I'm feeling a bit panicked about this as well. Do you have, do you, is it just experience that's taught you how to separate the two or do you have a way of managing and processing that kind of that internal feeling? No, you know, I, I have a way and it's teachable uh, and you know, there's no, there's no difference in gender with it. Uh, and it has to do with task focus. Right. So if, if you can intently focus on a task, it's very hard to feel your own emotions because you're in the prefrontal cortex of your brain. Right. That's where task, uh, tasks are, are held and where task focus occurs. Mm -hmm. And it's only after the task that you slip back into your amygdala and you start feeling fear and, and anger. Right. So I try to keep myself focused intently on, you know, fixing the problem and in a, a really dangerous place or set of conditions. The reason it's dangerous is because there's so much uncertainty, so many things that you can't know or you can't predict. And so having this outward focus where you're scanning the environment and trying to make sense of what's happening is a very calming thing to do. And if you're focused hard enough, you know, you're not going to feel fear. You're not going to feel anger. Uh, and often, uh, you know, if you've ever been on an aircraft where people were getting ready to jump, for the five minutes before the jump, all they're doing is checking equipment. Right. That's true. I've done that. And that's, that's what you do. You check and you recheck and you recheck. Cause I'm like, I will stay busy. <laughs> right. Right. And, and it's not that you haven't checked before, but it's that everyone performing those tasks settles everyone down and they're ready to go. And so, you know, I, I always used to tell cadets when we were, when we were trying to teach them how to become in dangerous places, I'd say, you know, never tell someone to, control their emotions because then they'll turn inwards and that'll make them worse. Mm -hmm. You just tell them you are not focused. You need to focus on what you're doing and then give them a task if they don't have one. 
And uh, that generally calms down, you know, even the most nervous uh, person. And I like how that brings us back to where we started the conversation, Tom, which is, you know, evaluating risk and having a, having a default response to, I need to focus. And actually, there are two things I need to figure out in this situation, what's most likely to happen and what's most dangerous to happen. So now I've got two specific things that I need to work on and be smart about and be focused about for the sake of the people I'm leading, but also for the sake of me self-managing my emotions around what's happening right now. Precisely. And it's Tom, okay to share that. Yeah. Tom, this has been a great conversation. I knew it would be. <laughs> I'm looking forward to seeing you again and hanging out with you again when, when all of this is over. Um, for people who are curious about the work you do and want to look you up online, where can they find you? Oh, gosh. Well, you know, we are the John and Andor Institute. So yes. D-O-E-R-R dot Institute. And that in, that comes up everywhere on Twitter, on Instagram, on uh, Facebook. Uh, so we're fairly easy to find. Door.rice.edu is our university website. And I have a website called TomKolditz.com. Tom, in like in a minute or two, can you just talk very briefly about the work you've been doing around coaching within the Institute? Because really you've been setting, uh, you've been doing some such interesting and fascinating stuff about that. Yeah, it's so exciting. And we feel that we are really disrupting the coaching industry in a good way. Yeah. So um, our, our basic approach in the Door Institute is to offer high quality, executive quality, leader development to every single student at the university, graduate and undergraduate students. And at Rice, that's about 7,500 people. And so we started by offering every one of them who wanted one a professional business coach from the Houston business community, an ICF coach. And uh, we get about 40% of students who, who want that. So we have a fairly large uh, coaching pool. We do a lot of coaching. But, you know, they have learned now what coaching means. And we now have undergraduates, class of uh, 2020, college, graduating college seniors, who have become ACC certified in uh, ICF coaching. Yeah, that's fantastic. And build coaches now. And so the switch has really started to flip in higher education where coaching is, at least at Rice, it's much more important than mentoring, uh, much more effective from our perspective. And, um, you know, the business models allow us to do it without it being heinously expensive like it like it sometimes is an industry. So it's affordable. It costs about half as much as classroom instruction. Right. So um, that's us. You know, we're just trying to, you know, we're not, we're, we're happy about coaching because it works. You know, we do a lot of measurement, outcome measurement on shifts in leader identity and uh, changes in leader competencies and things like that. And nothing works better than coaching. Nothing that we've tried. And believe me, that. if we had something that was better, we'd use it. But but, but when have you written up? Have you written up kind of the story of this, the research of this? Because you know, I'm, if you haven't, you know, there's a thousand people going write the damn thing up, Tom. <laughs> <laughs> well, we have. In fact, uh, we have a book that just went to the publisher. Oh, uh, be out in uh, January. Uh, we also have um, a deal that we've cut with the Carnegie Foundation. 
And Carnegie uh, classifies universities in the U.S., Canada, and Australia. And we are creating an elective classification for leadership education and development for all 4,500 schools in the U.S., uh, Canada, and Australia. Amazing. And it's an optional thing. You know, a university does not have to go for the credential, but it'll be there as a way for them to self-examine and to guide themselves so that we can increase the quality of leader development in universities across the globe. And Tom, what's the working title of the new book? Um, I think that we've called it Disrupting University Leader Development. Cool. We'll, I'll keep an eye out for that. I'm, I'm excited to see it. Tom, it's been a great conversation. You're awesome. Thank you so much. Michael, you're a terrific moderator and interviewer. I, I really enjoyed this time with you. Hey, it's Michael here. Two things before you go. The first is a gift. The second is a request. The gift, I want you to go to mbs.works and hunt down the year of living brilliantly. Really, it's some of my best work because it is a 52-week, 52-teacher, absolutely free video-based course where I spend a lot of time curating some of the smartest people I know and saying, teach me the best of what you've got. If you're looking to really step up, to have a year that's just a little bit sweeter, a little bit better than the year you've just had, that is a terrific resource. So please go and check that out. Absolutely free, no obligation, nothing required other than for you to sign up and get going on it. And then for the request, I just want what every podcast host wants, which is a little bit of love. So if you'd consider going to iTunes or Spotify or whatever your favorite podcast platform is, and giving the podcast a bit of a rating and a bit of a review, that would be amazing. Thank you.